0: Because there are, let's say, good libraries and bad libraries, which is not fair, but there are libraries that support both options in Composition API, and there are those who only expose Composition API. And if you plan in the future to move to this, yes, it will make your life easier.
1: Hello and welcome to PodRocket. My name is Noel, I am an engineer at LogRocket and today we're joined by uh, Natalia Tepluhina, who is a Vue.js core team member and a staff engineer at GitLab. How's it going Natalia?
0: So far so good, how are you?
1: I'm good. I'm good. Um, well, yeah, thank you for joining us today. We got a whole bunch where we're kind of, we can talk about and cover here. Um, I guess, yeah, to kind of, to kind of get us rolling though, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, um, kind of where you came from and what you've been working on recently?
0: As you already mentioned, I'm Vue.js core team member and I work a lot on Vue.js documentation. So if you've been reading Vue docs, especially Vue Three docs, there is a high chance that you've been reading something I wrote. And I'm not sorry for that. And as for work, so because Vue.js is not my main occupation, that's my open source activity. And for work, I'm, as you mentioned, I'm a staff front end engineer at GitLab, and I use Vue.js in my everyday work. So I work on the framework and work with the framework. And this is a really nice combination that works both ways.
1: Yeah, nice. It's, 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 uh, I think it's a super, like, it's a gift to be working on in a, a team where you're able to use the open source tool that you like to work on kind of when you, in your free time and your extra time that you have. Um, do you think that, like, uh, that is, like, a requirement to kind of get into a core team membership position? Do you have to be using the tool that you're, you know, like, working on every day to really get that comfortable with it? Or do you think that, you like, isn't required but is a nice to have
0: it's a great question. I don't think it's required. I know that many team members of UGS don't work with the framework every day, especially those of us who have full-time job on the framework itself. It leaves really little time to work on something that uses the framework. Sometimes they do consulting, so they still work with the framework, but not the full-time. But I think it's nice to have someone in the team who works with it because it brings you this feedback loop. That's something that you can report bugs, uh, test new versions of the framework on the real life big project, Uh, work with ecosystem, with testing, with everything, and report back to the framework. And it works nice for the product you're working on because you know everything about the newest features coming. You have some insights you can use in the company because, well, even if they're insights and you're not sharing them, you still have something to like. Okay, I know what to improve in my product in the light of common features. Right. So yeah, I consider myself being privileged in this position.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's that's super cool. Again, yeah, it's always it's always awesome to hear about those. Um, I guess I, I'm 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 curious. Do you ever do you think that like the problems that you guys are facing uh, at GitLab, like when you're working on stuff, does that ever influence where your time is spent when working on the on View, like on the project?
0: Not on Vue Core, but I can tell that it influences a lot on our contributions to View ecosystem because I'm not the only GitLabber who contributes to View ecosystem. I'm the only one that is core team member, but we have people working on Vue test, Utils, on Bootstrap Vue, and many libraries in the ecosystem. And these contributions are highly influenced by what we need at GitLab. Right.
1: Yeah, I mean, that makes it, again, I'm not I'm like, I don't think it's a fault or anything. I was just, I was, kind of <laughs> curious how that, um, yeah, how that, how that all ends up playing together. Are you guys on um, View 3 at GitLab or what, what, how does that, how does that play?
0: <sighs> I wish, I wish we were on View 3 <laughs> because the migration is cool, but especially migration of the core with combat build, but ecosystem is not there. And we all know that ecosystem is not there. We know that there are many, Versions for libraries for Vue 3, but there are a few core, big, not core, but big ecosystem libraries that didn't migrate. And if we mention them, like one of them is Nuxt that was in release candidate for a long time, like really lacking like behind of the core. Viewtify as one of the component libraries also. And unfortunately for GitLab, it's also Bootstrap Vue. Because our component library is wrappers around Bootstrap View components. I know how it sounds. I know, don't make this face. Like making a component library, wrapping another component library, yeah, it was a temporary solution. Mm-hmm. And as every single temporary solution stays forever. Yeah. <laughs> and it, then it bites you back. And it happened with Bootstrap View. Bootstrap View never migrated to View 3. And I don't think maintainers even plan to do this. So we have to different paths, like migrate Bootstrap View ourselves, or write our component library not to use Bootstrap View anymore. Both extremely painful. We're like looking at the first one, we're contributing to Bootstrap View. We have a few people who work on Bootstrap View components right now. But this kind of stops us from moving to v three. I'm really unhappy about it.
1: Yeah, no, that's. I feel like that's a pretty. It's a pretty common pattern people fall into. Is like, oh, we'll use a component library, and then we'll like kind of wrap our, wrap a bunch of components. We'll have higher order components that are around it. Like I have, I've, I'm in a similar position myself. Like I have a bunch of side projects, or even when I'm spinning up new stuff. Like I like to use Vue a lot, um, but I'm like a big Vueify user. And until we get like stable Vue three Vueify, I'm just like, I don't know if it's worth it yet for me. Yet like. A, it's so much of the appeal of Vue for me is those like component libraries being, um, being there and, and usable. Um, enjoying the podcast, consider hitting that follow button for even more great episodes. So that kind of leads me to an interesting question then, uh, is like Vue in uh, I guess in terms of adoption of Vue. Do you feel like this split that we have right now where there's kind of like a very robust ecosystem for two and three, which is definitely um, like more composable, more user-friendly, it's a better experience, but the ecosystem isn't there yet. Do you think that that is like kind of steering people away from Vue at all?
0: I don't think it's steering, but... You mentioned the split, and I agree with that. The problem is if you start a brand new project right now, Vue 3 ecosystem is ready for you. There are enough component libraries. Yes, Vuetify is not there. There is Element UI, though. And there is like Oruga. There are other component libraries that you can adopt. There, there is a bunch of other libraries in the ecosystem. And you can just start and be happy with your project. But if you have an existing one in Vue 2, migration is a different question. And I think it's still problematic to do a proper migration of at least mid-sized project.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. Um, so yeah, like what, if, if you don't think that that is, is much of a barrier, what, uh, what do you think are the big challenges for, like, Vue adoption out in the wild?
0: Well, I don't think there are big challenges for view adoption, especially for new users. I would say that for people who use React, it's even easier now. Even though composables and hooks are very different things on the inside. The API is quite similar if you look at them. And it makes people, for for React people, it makes it easier to start with you so they don't have this nice options API style that we used to. Like, yeah, I can just write hooks that are not hooks, but I'm fine. So there is nothing that prevents adoption, but I still believe that for people who are working on existing projects, the situation is unfair.
1: Yeah, gotcha. Um... I am curious too. Again, I'm, I'm I'm not I'm not like nearly as tuned into the Vue ecosystem as you are. Again, I like to use it for side products when I can, but I did see that uh, 2.7 was released recently. So, how does that play against like features in Vue 3? I guess what does 2.7 bring to V2? Um, like what 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 are the uh, kind of what are the things that are addressed there?
0: So, the biggest point of Vue 2.7 was to bring composition API to the core. Previously, you still could use Composition API with Vue 2, but you would need an external plugin. It could be View Composition API, or View Demi, or something like that. It would still be a third-party library. And not everyone is happy about bringing new features with third-party libraries, because like, just like Bootstrap View, you never know when it like stops being supported. Now it's in the core, and people feel safe about using Composition API. So abstracting logic, so they have new tool to abstract logic. Uh, it also brings script setup on top of that. So if you don't like your all good script and writing setup with Composition API with all the returns, you can use script setup. Again, this is a bit, for me personally, it's a bit of a controversial part. I don't like script setup. I feel like coming out right now, but it, like, I prefer using script with setup and explicitly return everything. And it also brings a very nice thing, which is be bind with CSS, which means that you can use right now the reactive properties in your CSS, in the style scoped, or not scoped, just in the style part of your single file component. But, like there is always but, uh, the reactivity system did not change. It doesn't mean that you start using proxies for your reactivity. We still have our old good object-defined property, which means all the reactivity caveats stay in the place. So you would still need to use view set if you want to add something to your array with just an index of the element. So this is not fixed.
1: Gotcha, gotcha. So with that in mind, then is is would you ever recommend like new users starting new projects start on on two seven or would you basically say always go to three if you can?
0: I would say if you start a new project, go to three because. Starting with Vue 2.7, you might risk to stay on Vue 2.7 for a long time. If it's a brand new project, probably your migration won't be as problematic as for old legacy ones. But I don't see why you should stay on Vue 2.7. While core is pretty stable right now, ecosystem is quite good. You might have issues if you don't, if you want to use very specific library like, I want to use Vue Defy. No, you just cannot start with Vue 3. Oh, you can if you're fine with beta.
1: Yeah, they have the beta version, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean,
0: there should have been a release candidate somewhere around this time. But from what I remember, John, John later, who is Lean Beautify, just had his third baby. So <laughs> it's blocking the release candidate. It should be still soon. But anyway, it's like if it's just a project you want to start and you're not bound to some specific libraries, go with Vue 3 If you're on the on the old project, try to upgrade to Vue
1: 2.7. Nice. Do you think that if you're on an old project, that 2.7 upgrade will eventually kind of ease the migration to Vue 3? Like, was that what a lot of the motivation for the features set added into 7 was?
0: Thank you for this question, Noel. It was amazing because this was basically asked to me, I think, 10 times on GitLab Slack just after we announced Vue 2.7. It depends <laughs> How was this joke? Like if you're a real programmer, wear a conference t-shirt and respond with it depends to any question. It depends, (laughs) but let me explain why. Uh, it will make your migration easier if you want to start abstracting logic to composition API right away. And you want to use some library that only supports composition API in the future because there are let's say, good libraries and bad libraries, which is not fair, but there are libraries that support both options in Composition API, and there are those who only expose Composition API. And if you plan in the future to move to this, yes, it will make your life easier. Uh, same applies to script setup, if you prefer to use it, but there is but. I think main blocker is not Composition API, neither script setup. The main blocker is still ecosystem dependencies, libraries, Unfortunately, Vue two point seven doesn't make any change for those.
1: Right, right. So I guess you you're, you probably think about this problem a lot, then, right? Like these dependencies and stuff. What, like, what is there? A, is there a light at the end of the tunnel? Do you think that there's any way to kind of ease that pain for devs in general, or or what is what does that future look like?
0: Well, we had this discussion within the core team too. <clears throat> there was even a question that maybe we should help some major libraries with migrating to Vue three. Basically, ecosystem-defining libraries, Beautify Next, whatever, and maybe we will, but we definitely cannot, as a core team, just take the maintenance of Bootstrap you, Let's say so. So this will help, but I think it just depends on the people who use the libraries. Normally, when these things happen, there will be a new maintainer for the library. There will be just people who pick it up and move it forward just like every single time in the open source world. And I believe this is the light in the end of the tunnel, just someone who takes initiative and makes the change.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. You know, like the, the changes will proliferate eventually in one form or another, either all the dependents will start using something different or things will just eventually break down. Like it, there's, you know, there is a train coming. It's just like, how does that, how does that end up happening? I think is the, is the question. Um yeah, but very cool. Thank you. Thank you for kind of prying in letting us pry into that a little bit there. I know that was kind of like, you know, close to your work and and figuring out how how that migration process is all going to look. Hey, this is Emily, one of the producers for Pod Rocket. I'm so glad you're enjoying this episode. You probably hear this from lots of other podcasts, but we really do appreciate our listeners. Without you, there would be no podcasts. And because of that, It would really help if you could follow us on Apple Podcasts so we can continue to bring you conversations with great devs like Evan Yu and Rich Harris. In return, we'll send you some awesome PodRocket stickers. So check out the show notes on this episode and follow the link to claim your stickers as a small thanks for following us on Apple Podcasts. All right, back to the show. Yeah, so you've given a bunch of talks recently. You you've been kind of a speaker for a while. Um and you've covered a whole bunch of topics. It sounds like recently you've been working on one or giving one concerning view query and like how that's useful. Can you give us kind of a little bit of background there on on uh, maybe what view query is and what the talk covers?
0: Yeah, totally. So, view query essentially is a wrapper around surprise react query. And in React Ecosystem, React Query has been around for a while, way more famous than Vue Query is in Vue Ecosystem. I think it was like lots of hype around it, and what it is if you never heard about it, because it's still fine not to hear about some new stuff in the ecosystem. React Query is the tool that helps you working with your server cache. What is server cache? If we If we look at our local state managers, be it Redux, Vue, Xpena, whatever, Xstate, if you're fancy. Like, in the real-life application, around 80 to 100% of data you store there is just something you fetch from the API because it's real-life application, right? You In reality, you store your data on server, and you just synchronize your client application with the server. There is some chunk of local data, just client one that probably will disappear or maybe stored in the local storage, like you want to add the command on GitHub or GitLab, and if you refresh a page, comment is still there. It's not on the server, it's normally stored in the local storage. But this is just a little part. Most of the part is something you fetch from the API. And how do you do this? You create a loading flag. You create a custom error handling. You create a query duplication sometimes because you need to. You update this cache every single time you send a request to the server, be it post or get request if you use REST API. Some of you are lucky, <laughs> just like me, and use a polo client that does this everything for you just automatically, which is amazing. But you would need CraftQL, not everyone has CraftQL. What if you use REST API? And what if you don't want to care about this server part and store it in your Storage. That was what React Query does for you. It basically creates a cache where it stores every single request, uh, every single response of the request you send to the API. You can update it manually, you can modify it, you can have a bunch of settings. Like you can say, okay, we store data for five minutes, and after this, we consider the data stale. And every single move of the user will just refetch the data. You can refetch on window focus, make a tries. It's just amazing library that solves so many issues, probably creating new ones in the process like it always happens, but it's still solved. And for Vue, it was like terra incognita. It was non-existent until in the beginning of this year, a nice guy whose name is Damian Ossipiuk created a wrapper because React query exposed the core not just React library. And it was possible to create just wrappers for different frameworks. So now we have it in Vue. And this talk was basically demoing uh, the local state that we have. We populated with data. We try to update it with some like extensions. And I'm just showing how they like slowly turning into a hot mess and how Vue Query can solve the problem.
1: Nice. Nice, very cool. Why do you think it took so long for something like Vue Query to come along? Do you think a lot of a lot of um, devs were using, like you said, like Apollo client was solving that problem for them, or or the, like people just didn't think about it that much? Why why do you think it took so long?
0: So I think it took so long because <laughs> it's it's funny because React Query already existed, but there was no core exposed. It was just a React library and. Maybe for Vue. So we have less boilerplate in Vuex. Definitely, I can compare like Vuex and Redux boilerplates for asynchronous operations. Both are like good-sized boilerplates, but Redux is like two times bigger. So probably it wasn't an issue. And Vue has, in my opinion, a little better reactivity because we have mutability. Right now, all the people who have like fancy mutability will disagree with me and probably stop listening. but. For average person, it's easier to mutate the state than grasp the idea of immutability. And for us, like just changing data in the state instead of writing resolvers, uh, not just reducers, resolvers is like an Apollo client influencing me right now. It's just a bit easier to understand. So for us, okay, we just change the state and it's it's fine for us. So maybe it led to less adoption in these terms. Right now, I think. Maybe partly due to my talks, the query becomes a really hot topic in Vue as well. And I know people start using it in production after that, and they, they're still happy. <laughs> Normally, if you start using something after the conference, I'm like, okay, I'm completely disappointed after two months. No, they're still using it and they're still happy. And I, I would just like to see people experimenting more about state management because I think I'm the one who complains about state management for at least three years fun fact in 2020 I had a talk that literally had a name you might not need Vuex and I didn't even realize how right I was like two years after we don't need Vuex
1: mm-hmm. yeah gotcha and, and and I guess now has that has that kind of been realized because you can use this query cache, like a caching layer to really do everything that one would have been leaning on Vuex to do before.
0: Yep, yep, totally. Like In my work, I use Apollo Client because I'm quite lucky we have, we are migrating from REST to GraphQL. So we're still using both and wrapping REST responses in Apollo resolvers. But if we were staying on REST and not planning to move to GraphQL, I would definitely just adopt Vue query tomorrow and start using it because our old state managers, like our old states and views that didn't have this and used REST API, I just can't look at them. And it's so easy to get lost. They have so many bugs because it's like the duplication failing or some just data is not synchronizing properly. It's crazy.
1: Yeah, maintaining a state like that is a really hard problem, right? Like that just kind of, I guess, caching. Like the caching problem in general, I feel like it is a manifestation of that, and it is hard to do very well. Um, so yeah, I feel like whenever we can lean on tools to do that hard hard work for us, it's a it's a bonus. Um, yeah, so we, we've we've talked about a, the Apollo clients a lot. I guess, kind of one final question on that note: if you are like again doing everything from scratch yourself, and you have the benefit of having a, everything in a graph a, a GraphQL API, is there any reason to use? View query over the Apollo clients, or are they about like parity there?
0: No, and I can even tell why. <clears throat> because Apollo client will allow you to benefit from strong type responses in GraphQL, and most of the automatic updates that Apollo is capable of doing, View query won't do by default. Because Apollo operates with GraphQL type name and ID, and using these two values, it can find the entity in the cache and update it automatically while with Vue Query, in some cases, you would need to write a manual update to the cache. Sometimes, as the case for Apollo 2, if you add like a completely new entity to the root level, you would need to update the cache too. But unfortunately, Vue Query is not designed, at least yet, for GraphQL strongly typed responses, and it doesn't benefit from this typed system.
1: Gotcha. Is there any is there any downside to using both? Like say you have GraphQL, like some GraphQL APIs, some REST APIs you're inter- interacting with. Would you recommend people use both? Is there any negative there?
0: No. I would say if you have both, you would still go with one. Probably Apollo, because Apollo still can work with REST in a bad like not in a bad way, but you would need to write local local side resolvers. So you like when you're querying something from REST, have a resolver that converts it to GraphQL shape. And puts it to Apollo cache, and for view queries, you still don't have this benefit of working with GraphQL, which is a huge part of Apollo goodness. Uh, and probably praising Apollo too much. So if you're thinking about using Apollo, you need to know that it's a library that has a lot of hidden magic. A view itself has a lot of hidden magic, but Apollo is like a king of hidden magic. And sometimes you will find yourself just trying to figure out why cache is not updating why this is not working oh we missed like type name and error messages are very cryptic just look at the console and say something like this is not this of this is undefined and like, I have no idea what you want to tell me and the error is deep in Apollo client itself so you just go and try to figure out like what is going on so don't get me wrong Apollo is by no means an ideal library it's very cool. It's, it does a lot of work for you, but the price is like dealing with the magic.
1: Right. Yeah. It's, it's like, it's like most of those super high power libraries. Like it's like, oh, it's great. Everything works. And then you hit one bug and you're like, okay, this is going to take two hours. Like there's always, you know, like you hit that. And it's like, I've saved 10 hours at this point, but fixing this bug that I, if I had written it myself, would be easy. It'll take me more time now. But again, I feel like we have a tendency as devs to get like really frustrated with libraries when they do that. And it's easy to forget like how much work they are saving you and how many other bugs you're not falling into along the way. Um, also, yep, absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you for kind of all of that, all that insight there. Are there any other talks um, kind of you've been giving recently or any topics you've been covering that you think um, I know would be particularly noteworthy or worth, worth chatting about a bit?
0: Unit testing. I've gave a talk about improving unit tests and I really loved it
1: nice. because it
0: was a talk full of pain <laughs> at, basically consisted of everything I complain on merge requests at my work mm-hmm. on tests. Right. Cause like you just review, okay, this test doesn't test anything or you're testing a wrong thing or like, okay, we should improve this test in writing it in this way. And I just collected this pain points and brought them as a topic. Cause if I want people to write good tests, I can share it with the community and maybe improve it globally instead of only my team. And I think, From what I remember about the reactions of those who viewed this talk, it was mostly given during the online conferences when lockdown was active. It was autumn and winter of the last year, and people were happy about it, sometimes agreeing, sometimes disagreeing. But they were asking for slides to share slides with their team, and I consider it being like a highest reward. If they want slides to share with the team, I probably did some good job.
1: Yeah, absolutely. If people want to share, that's always a good sign. Um, what are what are some of the common pitfalls? You, you talked about like in, in pull requests, you have people coming in. There, you know, like there's there's common um, things that people are doing where you're correcting. Like this isn't actually testing anything, or it's testing the wrong things. What are the what are the pitfalls, or what are the patterns to watch out for that you think devs are most often landing in?
0: First and the most important thing it's testing component internals. Instead of testing the component external behavior. In view test it deals, if you find yourself checking something that is wrapper.vm.something, like if you want to see if wrapper.vm.user is equal to John, you're doing it wrong. Because you're testing what component data is. Or computed or maybe component computed property, or maybe computed pro- like component prop. What you should have been testing is that div with class user has a text shown. Uh, how to see if you're doing it right? Try changing names for computeds and methods and see if your test fails. If you change the name of the method and your test fails, you're doing it wrong because you now your test is aware about component internal. The test shouldn't be, your test shouldn't know what is the name of the method. Your test is like basically clicking the button and seeing like what's happening. Like a component emitted some event call. Cool. It shouldn't be doing wrapper.vm.onclick handler. And people do it so much you wouldn't believe. It's like ever since second test I've been reviewing, like, yeah, it's wrapper.vm.send form. No. No, click the button, like call the submit event. So this was one of the biggest thing I've seen. And there was another one a bit more controversial about mount via shallow mount. I think it's a huge holy war in general in front-end world because there are people who are Can CanDot's idea and mounting the tree, which is cool, because you're testing everything mounted, super cool. But if you have a big size project and you don't have a perfect component architecture, you never have perfect component architecture if you work on seven years legacy, sometimes you find yourself in a component tree that consists of 20 components. And you following the idea of everything should be mounted. You mount it. And your tests are good. And you're using component library somewhere in the end of the tree. And then component library decides to change some attribute on their button. 99% of your tests are red. Because apparently, you're mounting the tree. And now your tree is not matching the snapshot. Because you apparently, you used snapshots for 20 components deep nested tree. Like use mount shallow mount wisely. If it's maybe like two level nasty, okay, mount is fine. If it's some complicated f- table that has multiple slots, maybe mount is fine. Don't mount on the root level. Use shallow mount and learn what are component contracts, which is basically props and emitted events. If you deal with a child component, it's enough to make sure that props are correct and component emits an event. So this was. A big discussion on the talk as well, but mostly it's like don't test component internals, please.
1: Right. Why do you think? Why do you think that that is so? That problem is so acute in um, like front end testing in general. We don't really like when we're doing unit testing on the back end. Like, you one could do that, but I feel like the tendency to do it is not there to the degree that it is with the front end. Like, why do you think that that is?
0: Two reasons. Because. From what I can see, not every single front-end engineer writes test, and people just tend to skip unit testing for front-end at all. thinking that end-to-end tests will cover it. no. End-to-end tests will cover some some things right. but if you want to find a granular issue with your problem with your project, unit test is still there. And I've seen so many projects where people don't write unit tests for their frontend, not a single one, that there is no surprise that when they start doing this, they fall into some wrong assumptions. Second one is ViewTestUtils documentation. At least in the past, right now, it's improved a lot. Actually used these patterns, mentioned them in a few places, and people were just blindly following. Or it had some <coughs> things like, I don't know, creating a local view instance and using it in every test without any reason. And people don't read people copy paste your code snippets. If you write documentation, that's a very common rule that code snippets should be functional. Because People will like stop reading and just copy paste the code that you have. Because reading is boring. <laughs> Let's just print it like Stack Overflow style. And it also affected a lot on unit tests. And also we didn't have clear guidelines besides view test details, I think, anywhere. So people were just inventing the wheel and going with a easy path, because it's easier. It's just easier to write wrapper.vm.something is equal to 1, then test the rendered template. What people forget in this case is even if your wrapper.vm properties, so data computed props, are absolutely correct, you as a developer can forget to put them in the template. It may be Maybe user is really John, but you forgot to just put John's name in the proper div, and on your screen component is failing, but your test is green.
1: Right, right. Do you think that there's um, like improvements that could be made to like the to the tooling to the testing framework to help prevent these kinds of problems? Like, is it even like you know could even have like linter checks that are checking for certain strings or like you are observing something you shouldn't be here, or um, are there other other tools you'd recommend?
0: I think this is a great idea. We implemented this Linter on the project level, but if we could bake it in back to view test utils, it would be amazing. Just like preventing some things like wrapper.vm from checks. Yeah, That's totally a great idea.
1: Yeah, cool, cool. Well yeah. Keep that one. Keep that one in the back of your mind. We can <laughs> maybe maybe that, that stuff will be <laughs> coming out soon and it'll this will be less of a painful problem at some point in the future. Um Awesome. So I think there was one other, we have one other note here about um, a talk you were giving about large scale refactoring. Um, was that, was that a pretty recent talk or was that, was that some time ago?
0: That, that was a recent talk. It was in June at JS Heroes conference. I think it was the only one I gave it. And again, it was talk full of pain. It was funny because it was a talk from, about the migration from version two to version three, but not for you.
1: <laughs> oh, gotcha.
0: And if you think like, yeah, migration, it shouldn't be a refactoring. It's easier, right? You just a data library. You just do NPM, install latest, and everything is called a no. It was a migration from Apollo Client 2 to Apollo Client 3, and it took us 11 months with significant rights to our queries, to the way that we handle our tests. Uh, to some things that never should have been working, but they did on Apollo 2. Apollo 3 is most strict, And like, it's the moment when you update the library and you start thinking, how, how did this even work? It sh- shouldn't be working. So yeah, it was a large scale work that involved all the front end team, lots of doing like code mode. So I even made a little live demo, impromptu live demo on code mode. And AST three modifier. Basically, I was just showing the analyzer of AST of JavaScript and how to quickly change things for Apollo client on some things. How we use linters because linters is one of the best tools that you can use during the large scale refactoring because you can just like forbid people to to do some things on their real life one and some hacks too because sometimes you need to stop. Your team of doing some things, but you cannot lint against it. So, a quick example: Like, what do I mean in this particular case? So, in Apollo three and Apollo two, we had a different mechanism of resolving the response in our tests. It still uses the mock Apollo client in tests, but in with Apollo two, we were like dumb, it, my, me myself, including like dumb developers. You have an Apollo query, and we used view next tick to resolve it. For those of you who don't use view, next tick is just a tick that's required for the component to render on the screen. So you click something in the test, you wait for the next tick, and you have model, for example. And normally, you shouldn't use next tick to wait until the query is resolved. You should have something that is called flush promises or wait for promises, and it's basically waiting for promise results. But next stick did work and it's easy. So we use next stick. So you mount the component, you wait for the next tick, you have your query result. Amazing. We migrate to Apollo client three. Nope. It's not working. It's not enough. And so what do we do? I cannot just move all the code base to Apollo client three and rewrite all the tests. I need something to affect my existing test. So people stop adding next stick. Can I lint against it? No. Next stick is viable. We use it to render components after we modify something like props is modified, and we want to check that now, for example, model is rendering. I cannot lint against it. So, how do I move people? And you make hacks. What do we do? We add a little helper to our Mocha Polo client that wraps the handlers for queries in the promise. In the promise. And we modify all the tests. Replacing NextTick next tick with flush promises. Cool. Now, when someone on the existing code base with Apollo Client 2 tries to use next tick, the test fails, and nothing like nothing motivates people to fix things more than failing tests. Like, because people, oh, why it's failing? And we have a guideline that explains, okay, we don't use next tick anymore. And when they come to the front end, you're like, why my test is failing now? Oh, we have this in the guidelines. Please check basically in two weeks everyone was writing flush promises and migration was easier and these little things is something that you'll learn during a large-scale refactoring, because sometimes you will need to use hacks. that's the only way
1: yeah yeah i'm i'm i've i'm thinking back to cases where yeah where we've we've done something similar where we've you know gone in and, and mocked something or stubbed it or in in some manner gone in and like put in a, a catch so we'll change everything that's using the old way if anyone tries to use the old way now, even if it would like, you know, be working in other cases, if it would break in this instance, the thing we're testing against break it. I feel like it is hard. It's hard to like abstract that concept, that, that, that way of doing things though, because it is so situational. Like those always kind of come up in slightly different permutations. Um, but yeah, I think I think that 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 pattern is one that we don't think about and like motivating and helping helping inform our teams even more than motivating is people just don't know a lot of the time right there. Like you said, copying and pasting and this is the way it was done. Um, so anyway, yeah, I think that is like a, a, a topic that is probably, uh, you know, needs more discussion than typically happens. Um, Another thing you spoke to is the like going in and trying to fix something when you're updating and realizing how broken it is. I can't count the number of times like all the time. It's like how is this even working? There's so many bugs in this. Um, those are always the worst kind of the worst kind of rabbit holes to go down. Um, awesome, cool. So again, we've we've covered we've covered so much. Is there anything um, kind of in particular in the future of Vue that you're excited about or looking forward to?
0: In my work, I'm definitely excited about one day migrating to Vue 3, even though the work would be probably twice as hard as migrating to Apollo 3 for us. But still, like using the Composition API, abstracting things, because currently our main logic abstraction is mixings. And it's very far from ideal. And speaking on the world of Vue, it's hard to say excited about anything, because Vue 3 went into very stable phase right now. There won't be that much innovation. There will be some red sugar that is experimental right now. And I'm still a bit torn about it because it's it adds magic. And as we discussed during the Apollo part, magic is not always good. I'm excited to see where do we go with built-in SSR, because it's still evolving. And next is not only the SSR, so generally like with SSR. And I like want to see like, how the View will be working with this part. Quite excited to see what testing ecosystem will stabilize on, because we had view test utils. Right now, we have VTest. I'm just curious to see like what wins and what will be working, because not everyone is using Vit right now. So, like, Because we have this little division, and it's unstable. But usually, there will be something that is winning, like it was with chest and karma in the past. And I like, can't yeah, just one. So this part is interesting. Suspense is interesting, too, because it never went to the stable one, neither on React nor on Vue. So I'm curious to see like where do we end up on Vue with Suspense, because it's a very promising concept. Complicated, but promising. And it could resolve so many things with just building this loading state in the component from the start, and instead maybe we can just wrap it in Suspense and be happy but we will see how it goes as well so these are mostly the points i'm looking forward in the view and ecosystem
1: yeah gotcha if you had to back on on the like the what the testing tool suite ends up looking like long term if you had to if you had to place a bet where do you think will be i don't know in two or three years
0: for unit tests probably V test because eventually we at least, at least Vue projects will probably move to Vit, and I can see that not only Vue is moving to this one. I can see that React is using Vit too, and Svelte has Vit as a recommended solution. So it may become standard in two years. Can't bet on this, but it looks very promising. And it's a bit more complicated in terms of end-to-end testing because we had Cypress that was clear favorite for a long time for JavaScript ecosystem. Right now we also have Playwright and it's very promising as well. It looks amazing, so like, Yeah. We will see if Playwright also has a backing of Microsoft. Not that it is like clear win, but it's a, it helps, right? It helps. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. also evolving mm-hmm. fast and it looks very promising too. And I'm just envy all these cool people who use Cypress or Playwright or whatever because I'm using RSpec at my work.
1: Yeah. I know. I know how that feels. Um, Awesome, cool. Well, is there any anything else you want to want to plug or send listeners to?
0: Well, not really. It was an amazing podcast. Thank you for inviting me.
1: Oh, of course, of course. It was it was my pleasure. It was it was great chatting and again letting us kind of get into the weeds a little bit. Um, thanks so much, Natalia.
0: Thank you.
1: Thanks for listening to PodRocket. You can find us at PodRocketPod on Twitter. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks.